you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We'll start in verse 25. Genesis chapter 2, starting verse 25. If you're a visitor with us this morning, our typical pattern is to walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, section by section. But this morning we're taking a bit of a detour, partly because of providence, but then also partly because of where we're heading next in Matthew. There is a reality that we need to recognize this morning, especially as we're about to approach some important passages in Matthew. I don't know if you know this, but driverless cars are a thing. Maybe for some of you that's exciting, maybe for others like myself, it can sometimes be a bit disconcerting. Do you really trust the computer in the car to make the right decision at the time? I don't even trust the automatic floor cleaner at Sam's Club. I don't know if y'all been to Sam's and seen that thing. It's kind of spooky watching it roll around in the aisles. But whether you see someone in the driver's seat or not, there is something driving that car. There's something pulling the strings or turning the wheel, as it were. There's something that's making those decisions. Well, this morning, I want us to recognize that in each of us is a driver. There's a part of us that is calling the shots. It's telling us where to go. It's telling us what to think. It's discerning good and bad It fills us with desires, it fills us with tastes, and the Bible calls it our heart. See, when people make a comment about the real you, we all know instinctively that the real you is more than just your physical makeup. It's more than just what is visible. That the sum total of who you are is more than just material, it's also immaterial. The Bible tells us that this comes from the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? Why are we so concerned with the heart? For from it flow the springs of life. Now before we get too far into this, let's define some terms. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it isn't referring to the organ in your chest that's pumping blood to your extremities. But just like that heart is at the center of your body, the spiritual heart, this immaterial aspect of our life, is at the center. It's the driver of the car, as it were. See, God created us in his image. And because of this, we have a material part of us and we have an immaterial part of us. It's interconnected. There's a part of you that can be touched and felt and even dissected. But it's abundantly clear that there's more to you than this. There's a part of you that can't be touched or measured, but it can be seen and felt. It's the internal that drives the external. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. See, this is really important for us to understand. A robust understanding of the heart And then how our desires interact is really important if we want to follow Jesus with faithfulness. Because from the heart, we are driven by desire. And so, let's look this morning at that reality, how we're driven by desire. And then, we're going to see how through the gospel, God gives us new 
desires. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we can't go through everything that this passage teaches us, but there's a few things that I want you to see. First, where do Adam and Eve start in verse, chapter 2, verse 25? Well, they start in the garden in a state of shamelessness. In a state where Moses writes about them being naked as an honorable thing. There is no shame in chapter 2. And just a side note, can you imagine what this would be like? This isn't the point of this morning, but this was clearly God's intended, uh, intended purpose for humanity. To live in his presence with one another without shame and regret. We can't imagine what this would be like. Almost every interaction that we have with God or with others is filled with either a heaping of or at very least a tinge of shame and regret, right? And yet here, none of it. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're filled with that. Your heart is being attacked by shame and regret. You're ashamed of your attitudes. You're ashamed of your actions. You're ashamed of your very desires. You can't bear to think about the things that you've done or the things that you want to do. Well, we're certainly going to be talking about our desires a lot this morning. But before we talk about that, I want to just briefly mention what God's desire is. Did you know that God's desire for you If you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, God's desire for you is to live without shame and regret. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to a salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, in the course of this morning, you might experience shame and guilt. You might be pricked at the heart by the Spirit about something that you've done or something that you've thought or something that you want to do. But you know what leads to a salvation without regret? Repentance. We're going to see this morning, even though our desires are corrupt, that God, through the gospel, provides us the the very thing that we need. Grace for repentance. And you will never regret repenting. 
Now, let's go back to the task at hand. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and they're approached by this crafty serpent who begins to ask questions. Questions that make them wonder if God really is good. Make them wonder if God really loves them. He's wanting the woman and the man who's presumably sitting passively on a stump next to her to doubt that God cares for them. To convince them that God is withholding and stingy. Look again at the verses. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now we get here a narration of Eve's heart. It's like the freeze frame from the good 80s movie that says, now you're probably wondering how I got here. Well, this is giving us that insight here. And you see the pattern. That desire precedes action. Our actions are a byproduct of our desire. I mean, look at the ways that Eve is moved internally before she ever moves her hand externally. She sees it. Internally, at a heart level, the fruit as good for food, as a delight to the eyes, as one desired to make her wise. See, Eve, at a heart level, is convinced that this fruit will satisfy some hunger within her, that it is what she wants. And when you think about this, it makes sense. God had created a world of desire. He created a world in which there would be desire. I mean, look back at chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is, listen, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God made a world in which desire is meant to be a part of it. God made a world in which desires are meant to be filled. I mean, do you see how the trees are described, right? Good for food, a delight to the eyes. And this is the the judgment that Eve makes of this one tree in the middle. See, the only reason that I think Moses would have described the world this way is because God intended our world to be a place in which desires are filled. I mean, he could have made us like those very trees in which we gain our sustenance from the air and from sunshine. But no, he gave us nerves and taste buds, ways to interact with the world. He made it so that we would find physical and emotional sensations We would find pleasure and enjoyment in the world around us. He made us so that we would have tastes that would be satisfied. Thirst would be quenched. Appetites would be filled. Itches would be scratched. And Eve knew it. But notice how there's a disorder here. See, Eve's desire shifts from the plethora of trees she had open to her to the one tree that was prohibited. 
Eve saw some sort of similarity between the fruit of the tree that was warned against and the other fruit of the garden. Eve's desire moved beyond God's judgment and into her own. That this will give me something that God won't. And we do what Eve did, right? We look around at the world and we see things that are clearly commanded and encouraged by God and we say, all right, that's good. There's something there. But is there more? So we start looking beyond the bounds. We start looking outside of the fence. We look at the things that we are told by the scriptures are clearly wrong. And we wonder, like Eve, will this provide something more? It certainly looks like there's something good there, doesn't it? I've been told that this is wrong, but it certainly looks harmless. In fact, it looks like it might even taste good. We look outside the boundaries of God's good design and we begin to ask, what's wrong with some of that out there? Looks fine to me. In fact, I see other people enjoying those things and nothing seems to be happening to them. Why not me? See, we listen to these subtle voices, these echoes of the serpent, as it were, asking if God really said. And we wonder... Has God withheld something? And the reason that this is tempting for us is because our sinful hearts are prone to desire things that are not given by God. And this is especially true in our culture today, but I see it all the time with teenagers. See, the voices that our world has, that we hear, they're not so subtle. In fact, they're pretty loud. But their arguments sometimes can feel right intuitively. What's the big deal if that's what people want to do, if it's not hurting other people? There's something about that that seems right to us. It resonates with us. I think in part because it feels oppressive and torturous to us to deny our natural desires. We're so hardwired and trained to follow our hearts that we give in to these these desires because it feels like death to deny them. This is why... We and our culture have bought so much into the sexual revolution, into the LGBT movement. Because the mere thought of denying our desires is such a painful reality that giving into them just seems natural. James 1, 13 and 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see James's pattern here. See, the problem is not within the things that we desire outside the fence. The problem, in fact, is inside the fence. The problem is in our own hearts. Sin has so corrupted us that we took what God intended to be good, what God intended to be desired, and we distorted it. We have taken what God has prohibited and we've said, that's good. And sure, external temptation is a real thing. There are forces outside of us that want us to fall fall into sin. This is important that we recognize this. We have a world 
in which the current of humanity is running headlong away from God. But we also have spiritual enemies that would tempt us and draw us away from the living God. We have things outside of us that want us dead and damned. But we cannot blame any of these for our sin. For the chief problem is not outside of us, it's inside of us. This is James's point. This is what we see in Eve. Her chief problem was not the serpent. Her chief problem that was that her heart believed the serpent's lies, and she wanted it. See, if we blame circumstances or influence or people for our sin, then we end up, like Adam and Eve, blaming the sovereign hand of God. This makes us no better than Adam. Adam said, the woman you gave me. Maybe for us, it's the children you gave me. If my children were more obedient, I would sin less. Maybe it's the job you gave me or the job you took from me. Maybe it's the sickness you gave me or the sickness you didn't heal. Maybe it was the house that you provided or lack thereof. Maybe it was the patterns and habits that I picked up from my parents. See, what higher arrogance do we have than to blame God for our sin? That danger is on the inside. The killer is inside the house. And it is when those external temptations match an internal desire that we have problems. Right? Think for a moment about fishing. It does little good to drop just a plain old hook in the water. So what do we do? We bait it. We put something on it that matches the desire of the fish. Something that has the right smell, something that has the right taste, something that has the right color. Something that is going to spark a desire within the fish. Well, the same thing is true with our sin. We want something. And so external temptation becomes dangerous because we have desires that want it. Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See, it is a heart issue that's the problem. And don't miss this. You and I pursue sin because we want it. The reason that sin is a temptation is because we want that sin. Anytime that we give into temptation... We have no excuse. The most honest thing that we can say is I did it because I wanted it. Maybe if you have a toddler or a small child, you'll ask them, why did you do that? And sometimes, in a moment of theological clarity, they will say, because I wanted to. It's true for all of us. You do what you want. I do what I want. Every decision that we make on a given day, we do a cost-benefit analysis. And we say, oh, the benefits outweigh the cost? I'm going to do it because that's what I want. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but this passage is crucial for understanding 
the relationship of our desires and God's judgment. In this passage, we're going to start reading a little further down, but up in verse 18, we know that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness because we suppress the truth for a lie. Romans 1's problem is the same as Eve's problem. And so, Romans 1 paints this broad struck, broad brush stroke of humanity. We're all sinners. We're all under the judgment of God. But notice what the judgment of God looks like. Look in verse 24. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God struck them down. No, that's not what it says. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See, do you see that our problem is still the same? We suppress God's glory. We we suppress the truth of God. And in so doing, God judges us. And what is his judgment of us? By giving us exactly what we want. I think this surprises us, that this is the judgment of God. I think when we think about judgment, we instinctively think a restriction from something. We think something is withheld from us. But in fact, it's the opposite. God in judgment lets us run the course that we're running. He lets us take hold of the things that we want. God will give you exactly what you want. And that's not good news. James has already told us, right? What happens when our desires give birth? What do they give birth to? They give birth to death. I mean, just look at the list of outcomes here. What is What are we full of whenever this is the type of life that we live? Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Okay, maybe that first list, nothing resonated with us. But then Paul keeps going. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Children, you're not exempt either. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Some have described this, the fruit 
of the flesh. When we give over to our desires, this is what comes out. When we entertain and submit to the desires of our heart, this is the fruit. So, what needs to happen? Well, if we have disordered desires, there's only one thing that can cure us. The death and resurrection of desire. What's the resolution to this heart problem? It isn't just a dissolving of desires, right? God didn't redeem us so that we would squish our desires so that we wouldn't have any. No, through the gospel, he restores us and he gives us new desires. But this only happens through the work of Christ. In other words, your heart needs resurrection. Thanks be to God, this is exactly what he promises to do. But before we get to resurrection, there's got to be crucifixion. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, the desires that lead to death must be brought to the cross of Christ and nailed to it. The work of Christ in the believer is an inside-out work. We see this all the way from the beginning, right? E, or the serpent aimed his fiery darts at the heart of Eve. Well, so too must the nail of the cross of Christ puncture us at a heart level. Before our heart, and therefore our desires are resurrected, they must be killed. Romans 6, 5-8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved to our desires. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. See, when we come to Jesus, we are so unified with him that the literal death of Christ brings about heart change. This is a supernatural, miraculous thing. It is not anything that we can conjure. It is something God must do. And by supernatural, I don't mean visibly spectacular. I mean it is a work of God and God alone. By faith, we believe that Christ took our place And when we are joined with him, unified with him, it is to such an extent that your cold, stony, dead heart filled with sinful desires is crucified with him. And then, only the Spirit can apply this kind of work. This work that began over 2,000 years ago is brought to you now in God. And this is key. This is key for us to understand our unity with Christ here. Because it is only through the death of Christ that we can be free from the bondage of our sinful desires. Again, Romans 6, 7 that we just saw. For one who has died has been set free from sin. No longer are we slaves to our sinful desires if we are in Christ. We have been set free by his substitutionary work on our behalf. A new life, new heart, and new desires. And this comes with resurrection. Keep looking in Romans chapter 6 verse 8. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what is the fruit? What comes out of this? Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." See, it's not enough to simply crucify old desires. When something is expelled from your heart, it creates a vacuum. Our hearts long to be filled. And typically, our hearts will go for the closest, most convenient, tastiest bit of sin that we can find. So we don't just need crucifixion, we need resurrection. It is the death of Christ that kills our old desires, but it is the resurrection of Christ that grants us new desires. And this is exactly exactly what the Spirit does in your heart if you are a believer. It displaces your old, weak, disordered, sinful desires with desires that are stronger. They're ordered and they're righteous. Ephesians 4.20 But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, old desires must be replaced with new desires. And this is what Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor from the 19th century, called the expulsive power Of a new affection. See, by the Spirit, our old desires are replaced by new and greater ones. Chalmers puts it this way in this idea in which the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are diametrically opposed. Chalmers says this The love of God, or a desire for God, and a love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. And that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same heart. One will expel the other. It is for this reason that we need what the Spirit provides, this resurrection, this new life, this new heart, these new desires, desires for God. Ephesians tells us in chapter 2 that at one point we were following the course of this world, following the devil. And what did that mean? That we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But in order to displace these desires, we must be made alive in Christ. We undergo this resurrection, the raising of our hearts to give us new desires. Desires to God. Desires to honor Him. Desires to obey Him. Desires to experience Him more. Chalmers is helpful here too. He says this, in a word, If the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great object... It is to fasten it to the positive love of another. 
then it's not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing the mental eye to the worth and excellence of the latter. That all the old things are done away with and all the things are to become new. See, it is when we are enraptured by the glory of God that new desires begin to take place in our hearts because we realize he is more worthwhile than anything else. And this is what faith looks like. Faith is how we lay claim to Christ. We believe in his person, in his work, and in his promises. And then, what does our faith do? Our faith bears fruit in keeping with repentance and obedience. See, we are saved certainly apart from works. It is only the grace of Jesus that can save you. You cannot save yourself. You cannot come to God and find acceptance in your own right. You need the work of Christ. But then, what does God save us to? If we're saved apart from works, what are we saved to? We're saved to good works. So this means, in terms of our desires, that we have two primary tasks. What are the good works in terms of our desires? Well, it means... The first is that we discern discern the desires of the heart. We need to look introspectively to figure out what our desires are. And then secondly, we deal with them. See, discerning the desires of the heart is like solving a crime. The crime is already being committed, so we work backwards. James chapter 4 verse 1 says this, You covet and cannot obtain... So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I missed the first verse there. What causes quarrels and fights among you? If it's not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. See, James's point here is that there's a root to your sin. We see the sin working out, but then we need to follow that trail back and find the desires at the root. Sin, murder, fighting, quarreling, discontentment, covetousness, all of these find their root in the heart. When we first moved here in Abilene, we had a flower bed out in front of our house that had these, I don't want to call them bushes, I also don't want to call them flowers. They weren't weeds, but they were ugly. There were these stalks, and they filled the flower bed. So I knew, okay, if I just go in and cut them off at ground level, it's not going to do any good. So I went through, and I would grab them as low as I could get them, and I would yank. And there were so many of them that I got tired. And you know what happened? They came back with vengeance. And so what did I have to do? I had to dig down at least a foot and a half into my flower bed and find the base of these roots. And even after all of that labor, sprouts still came up the next spring. This is what sin does. It's so ingrained in our hearts that even if we go the one step extra, it feels like, okay, I've done my labor, I've done enough hard work here, I've dealt with it. But I think we fail to consider how deeply rooted sin is in our hearts. We fail to consider how much our desires have been distorted by sin. And so it is our job 
by the Spirit, with the aid of the church, to root out desires. So when you see the fruit of sin in your life, start driving to the root. Ask yourself things like, what was I really wanting? What was I wanting in this instance? Why did I blow up at my wife and kids when I got home? Was it because I wanted to be lazy? Maybe it's a lack of generosity in your heart. You're not generous. You know that you ought to be. And so you begin to work back. And maybe at the root of that lack of generosity is a love of money. Your desire is to feel secure and have a sense of status with your finances. And to give it away feels unproductive. Maybe there's bitterness in your heart towards a particular person. What are you wanting? Are you wanting to be vindicated? Are you wanting them to feel the pain that they caused you? Are you wanting vengeance? See, anytime we see the fruit of sin, we need to begin to look back and find the root of desire. Now, I say this with a caveat. There's a warning. There is a danger of being overly introspective, to looking too much in on ourselves. So, yes, discern the desires of your heart. But you will be much better served by positively seeking to cultivate new desires. Robert Murray McShane put it this way, For one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. See, it is the beauty and glory of Christ that will expel the dark desires of your heart. See, if we don't replace those old desires with new ones, then we're only doing half the job. And that is pointless. Half a job is like doing no job at all. So, we must cooperate with the Spirit. If you're in Christ, then the Spirit dwells within you, and His work in you is to give you a desire for Christ. But what does faith look like? Faith looks like cooperating with the Spirit. Seeking, by God's help, to cultivate new desires. So the first thing that I want you to see in your task, in your goal, in your striving to cultivate new desires is how important your attention is. What has your attention has your mind. And what has your mind has your heart. Colossians 3, 2-5 puts it this way. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. In other words... Think about God. Think about Christ. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What should we do then? If this is true, what should we do then? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So, where is your mind? Where is your attention? What voices are most frequently in your ears filling your mind? What images are most prominent in your eyes? All of these things, all of this input from the external world will have a direct correlation with what you desire. If you want to desire God, then you must set your attention on Him. Let Him fill your mind. God has made us a people of acquired taste. Now, I'm from the Lubbock, Texas area, 
And particularly in this year, there's not many people, or this time of year, there's not many people on earth that would say, Lubbock, Texas is beautiful. But I kind of like it. You know why? Because I'm familiar with it. Because I grew up there. It reminds me of things. It feels like home. Well, this is what happens whenever we cultivate desires. We become familiar with things. We spend time with things. And you know what? We begin to like them. Have you ever tried something new and you didn't like it at first? Maybe kids. (laughs) But then, you become familiar. You realize, oh, God has blessed this. And so over time, the more time that you spend with something, the more time that you spend involved with something, the more time that you spend thinking about something, guess what? You're going to find you have a desire for it. So, what does this mean? It means maybe the best place to start dealing with your desires is your habits. What are the habits that fill your day? Begin to work right now. Think about the habits that fill your day. What do you habitually do? What's part of your daily routine? And then begin to think about, what is this preaching to me? What does this fill my mind with and therefore fill my heart with? What does this make me think about? Is this intentionally geared to draw my mind to the Lord? Is there anything in your daily routine right now that you have built in to intentionally draw your mind to the Lord? Do your habits fuel your love for God? And maybe the greatest area that needs to be addressed here is our use of technology. Perhaps our phones. What habits do you have with your phone, and how is that filling your attention? What is it filling your mind with? And do you see how it's beginning to bear fruit in your heart? Do you see how it's changing your desires? How many of you had a tinge of anxiety the second you thought, I don't have my phone on me? Why? Because our desires are being geared for it. So it feels like there's something missing when that phone is not around. This is a, somewhat of a silly example, but it's telling how much our hearts are influenced by our habits. And this matters because, why do our habits matter so much? Because we intuitively react to our circumstances. Right? When an opportunity arises to fill a desire, what do we do? We don't reason through it. We take it. I see it. I like it. I want it. So I take it. Tim Chester puts it this way. Which Tim Chester wrote a book called You Can Change. Uh, Kingsman. We're going through that on Saturdays. And providentially, Saturday's on desire. So maybe take this as a sign. You need to be there on Saturday. Okay? But Tim Chester puts it this way. Most of our moral decisions are reflex responses. We act in the moment. Before we know it, malicious words are out of our mouth, and we can't take them back. What counts in those situations isn't our ability to carry out moral reasoning or biblical reflection. It's the habit of holiness. It's Christian character. It's an undivided heart. So do you want to sow desire for God? Do you want to sow Christian character? Do you want to sow habits of holiness? then begin by resolving to take your habits captive. 
Maybe this begins with Bible reading. Maybe this begins with verse memorization, using the fighter verses. Make one of the or make Bible reading your daily routine. Something that I found helpful in my life is I have I make it my pattern so that when I get up in the morning, I don't look at my phone, I don't pull I don't pull up email or anything like that until after I have read my Bible. Because I've found in my own heart, I'm so tempted by sin, so tempted by my phone, if I pick up my phone and start looking through it, I'll look up, oh, would you look at the time? I don't have time to read my Bible anymore. I know none of you can relate to that, but that happens to me. So use your family members, use your spouses, use your D group members, and then come up with ways that you can develop these types of habits that curate desire for God. Can this be legalistic? Of course it can. But that doesn't mean we should avoid it. So be disciplined. Find ways in which you can build into your day habits that turn your mind to the Lord. One of the greatest difficulties that we have, even as Christians filled with the Spirit of God, is we often forget God exists. So do things. Develop habits so that you would be reminded of Him, of the reality of God, and then see how your desires begin to shift towards Him. See, sin is dangerous because our desires are not fully aligned with Christ. We are, st- we are still tempted, even as Christians, because we have errant desires within us. But how do we fight sin? By greater desires. See, in this life, you will never be free of sinful desires. This is not a promise that God has given you. And if anybody tells you that, you're lying. However, what you will find and what God promises is that you will progressively be brought to a point where your new desires supersede your old ones. And there will be times where you'll feel the conflict in your soul. You'll feel the conflict of, I see this sin and I feel like I want it, but I also want God. And so what you're going to see is over time, those desires to God are going to slowly push out those old, disordered desires. So don't feel shame for the desires of the flesh. Don't feel shame that you have these desires within you. When you see them crop up, resolve to see them killed by the glory of God. Resolve to see them superseded by a new, greater desire. Fix your mind on Christ. Fix your mind on God so that your heart would be stirred for him. You know, sometimes it's never better said than in an old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You'll come to a point where you're surprised by how little you are tempted by things that once held you captive. You know why? Because God is working into your heart through the Spirit, through your meager, pathetic efforts to cultivate a new desire for Him. And the things of this earth, they'll grow strangely dim.